of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is the sixth in the series of monthly conversations with my good friend and podcasting arch enemy, Ollie Lovell. But this episode, we try something a bit different. Ollie and I reflect upon three things that we've tried, seen or been thinking about in the last month. But there comes a time in many relationships where one partner wants to spice things up a bit, and that person is Ollie. Clearly, I'm not enough for him, so Ollie suggested we invite special guests to join us each month for a series of experimental episodes. So, first up, today we are joined by the fantastic primary specialist Emma Turner and walkthrough guru Tom Sherrington from the Mind the Gap podcast. We discussed the view from the back of the lesson, implied competencies, Montessori, the pre-testing effect, and so much more. Ollie Lovell, how are you? Uh, I feel like you'll be very happy today, Craig, because uh, my demise has begun and I'm actually sleep deprived this time. Now, long-time listeners will be loving this because we're tracking Ollie's decline. Um, he was very cocky when he first had his had his uh, wonderful child, but now um, reality's hit home and every episode, Ollie's just getting worse and worse. It's becoming more and more of a wreck, so that is good news for everybody. Now, something a bit different this month because clearly I'm not enough for Ollie. He wants to introduce other people into our relationship. And those first two people are the wonderful Emma Turner and Tom Sherrington. So hello, Emma. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Oh, Ollie, it does get better. I had three. I'm still alive. I came out to the side. You will You will survive. Thanks, Emma. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's good news. And Tom Sherrington, how are you? Very good. Great. Yeah. And um, my children have left home. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't the kind of smugness we need on this show, but nice, nice to have you anyway. So listeners will know the way this works is normally Ollie and I share three ideas each we've been thinking about and trying out. But this time for this special edition, because Emma and Tom host the fantastic Mind the Gap education podcast, we've invited them on and they're going to share two ideas each. Me and Ollie are going to share one idea each and we're going to see where it goes. So kicking us off uh, for this episode, we've got Tom. What have you been thinking about this last month, Tom? Okay, so my my main sort of groove of thinking over the last few months really has been what it's like to sit in the back of a lesson and um, sort of flipping the perspective that the teacher's got. When, when you stand at the front of the class, it's, it's quite weird the view you have compared to the view you have from the back. And sometimes I think it's like kids are in a sort of little world, this little microcosm of existence which is so far removed from what the teacher's kind of hoping is happening. <laughs> the kind of the idea is to really just be super attuned to that and to be thinking, I wonder what it's like all the way over there in that far corner for Sophia or Abdi or James, because from their perspective, this might not be going down the way I'm hoping it is. And to really check in on that. 
and to be really and so you, you've got to have then tools for checking in on that how do you know like sometimes the geography of classroom means that students are quite a way away and and i often want I, sometimes it makes me laugh but also a bit sad that imagine this child is here and the teacher's over there and everything else evaporates and it's just the two of them how weird that would be to teach one person sort of you know 15 meters away by kind of hardly seeing their book and kind of calling all the way over to them it would just be really weird but that is actually what the students experience actually is in the lesson so you've got to think if you were if they were just by themselves you would go over to them and you would like engage with them and find out how it was going but in a lesson sometimes you just don't and and i see so many lessons where those kids in the margins are just in little islands of kind of isolation and i just think that's that's my idea is that you've just got to be thinking all the time what's it like to be over there and go and the tools the things like you know whiteboards um circulating show call all these things where you just get a sense of if that's if the students are doing okay and what they're thinking and and so on and it's just such a, a common thing for that not to happen so that's my that's my my what i'm thinking is kind of then what are all the ways that you can do that you know what are all the different ways teachers can run a lesson so that the kids in the corners are are, are kind of part of the flow of information to and fro from the teachers to the students and back and um, they don't literally have to be in the corners they're kind of metaphorical corners as well as physical ones yeah anyway i mean i could say more but that's my thinking Love it, Tom. Let me hand over. Emma, anything to comment on that from, from Tom? Then I'll go to Ollie. I was just thinking it's such a, a kind of a primary, secondary thing because very often you, we literally have the children gathered around our feet sitting on the carpet. So you don't have that huge distance thing and you can very much more easily kind of scan scan the learning horizon, shall we say, because they're literally in front of you. So as you were talking, I was thinking, is this potentially a classroom layout? aspect is it a potentially a primary secondary aspect because i i still find it really difficult to teach in a room where i haven't got a carpet space for those exact reasons that i can't have them all near me in the way that i want in the way that i would like to so in classrooms where in primary there is no carpet space i always feel a little bit jittery because i'm thinking of those exact things i can't see what's going on with those children so that's what i was well, reflecting on time while you were talking about that well, I, think I would say if i may say that sort of i mean i observe this all the time and i would say I see it i see it personally in primary as much as secondary because anywhere where there's tables um you know, I sit, I sit in a lot of primary schools on those little chairs. <laughs> the <back. laughs> They're very good for your back. They're wonderful and, and, off, and often, you know, it's the same. You know, the teachers at the front using the resources, clicking through the slides, feels trapped at their station. A lot of teachers have this thing mm -hmm. of being, like, locked in by the geography of their station, the thing, the, their tools. And they have to remote control the interactions with the kids over there. And that happens just as much in key stage two, you know, as mm -hmm. as it does in in key stage three for certain. So it, it's a thing of it's a kind of mindset you have to get into to think to, to even just ask yourself the question, what what would this sound like? Even and I, sorry to go on, but one one of the things I observe is like even I make this joke in my training all the time. Like when you're at the back of the class, the teacher says to the kids in the front row, they'll say, 
okay, Ollie, so what's your idea? What did you think was happening in the story? And Ollie goes, well, I think what was happening was, and it gives a great answer, but from the back, all you hear is, and the teacher's going, oh, Ollie, that's fantastic. And Craig, what do you think? And from the back, you hear, and it's, you, you don't even hear what they said. And the teacher doesn't think, maybe no one heard that. They just carry on as if everyone heard it. And sometimes you just think, oh, did you hear that? No. So it's really the, the, the life at the back of the class <laughs> isn't always that great. And you have to think about it. Sit in every chair as well, Tom. Sit in every yeah. chair in your classroom. <laughs> and see what yeah. the view is actually like and you realise that actually you can't see the board or I sat in a classroom the other day it looked, looked like the children could see the board beautifully but where the sun used to come round in the morning blinded about sort of four different children and I sat in their chairs and I, could, I was like you can't see anything on that board you can't see a thing they're like no I know so have you ever told anybody that no <laughs> the whole time this teacher is modelling 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 you know the what's it out of what she's doing Kids can't see it. Oh, <laughs> Ollie, any uh, any comment for Tom? Yeah, well, the first one is I'm wondering why in that impression I had a much higher voice than Craig did, uh, Tom. That's the first bone I have to pick. But, uh, but secondly, uh, now I'm just wondering, Tom, when, when you're usually in classrooms and um, doing these kind of observations, um, no doubt you oh, – I'm wondering, do you have an opportunity to work with the teachers to help them – get a clearer view of what is happening for these students who are, who are sitting up the back? And if so, um, what what do you actually suggest to them and how do you work with them to help them uh, better reach those students? Well, I think the first thing is, I mean, it's a sort of, to be honest with you, it's a classic example of the Jim Knight uh, kind of uh, reality check thing where you have to say, you know, did you notice? And, and often I see things which the teacher couldn't possibly have noticed. So I, I feel like I can say, I, I never, I never, are judgmental about it. I just think you can be. I just say, often you're just thinking, you know, we're talking about the lessons afterwards and you're saying, it's amazing, isn't it, how hard it is to notice everything. And I noticed that when you were doing that amazing modelling that little Jessica next to me, she was just like all over the place. And I'm just totally sympathising with the teacher and saying like, you know, that is hard. And I, and I think the suggestions we usually discuss then are things like, you just have to almost have like a kind of a moment of pause and reflection around that issue and just say, okay, let me just check in. Like your checking for understanding has got to have a sort of a spatial aspect to it and almost never assume that any anything that any one person has said has been heard by anybody else. So the, the, the suggestion I'm normally floating is, well, I, I call it cross-class checking. So like over here we heard it. What did you think from that over there? And do you want to repeat that? What did you think? What did you say? Say it again so that people over there, like literally amplify and, and check and to circulate. I mean, I, and that's the thing I've... I, circulating is, you've just got to get round. And and then also whiteboards, you know, sort of have a lot more show me, show me boards, like being more prominent than sometimes they are. So those are the sort of practical things you can do. But most of the time, it's just to do with just literally noticing that that might be an issue and not assuming. I find that almost does more more than any of the other things. It's it's the it's just a kind of I don't know, just being vigilant about it in the way that you're scanning the room and 
and picking things up. But it's not, you know, it's easier said than done. It's it's uh, something you have to think about almost all the time. Mm, that's really interesting. One, one, I mean, this is an issue in workshops as well. Often, and I and I often find it's the case when you might be at the front and you you are asking a question or you're inviting people to contribute, and they always talk back to you. Um, whereas, and it will often be those keen beans in, in the front. So the question is, how do you? I mean, in the classroom, often you you can say, can you please like project your voice a bit more? But sometimes people aren't that willing to do that. Or I mean, I mean, I know Craig puts people through the ringer in his workshop, so I'm sure he'd be happy to push them push them to do that. But um, so I've, I've been thinking about um, ways to kind of. Uh, get people to talk to the whole group and one way to actually do it is um, and this would work in the classroom as well depending upon the geography of the classroom actually moving so that you are behind the student at the front who is responding to you or the workshop participant so they actually have to turn around and they're they're still talking to you but they're naturally projecting to the whole rest of the room as well so if I guess for people who are running workshops that's one way to one tip but it can also work in the classroom especially in kind of labs or um spaces where you do have the space to kind of move around a bit. Yeah, and that's nice. Other, Just other, a, a couple of other final reflections. Oh, sorry, Tom, you go. I've, I've caught you off there. You go for it, mate. I know, I was thinking that sometimes, I always think if, if the if the space is like super large, and like I was in a space recently doing this and, I ended up sort of just standing in the middle, like like on the on the sides, but in the middle, just going all the way around because you're thinking, it's ridiculous to be sort of like bellowing to the edges here. So I was sort of like in the center and, I, and, and then moving around and, Doing the, te- the teaching, the leading, not always from the same position, and and then you feel like you get a much more sort of three sixty view of it all. Uh, but I do think, I mean, I've seen some teachers do this. They have this lovely habit. A lot of primary teachers have this of just saying they really sort of echo back, like, and it's good for reinforcing the language anyway. So, yeah, so that's lovely, Emma. What Emma was saying was that, uh, well, so what do people think of that? And like helping everyone engage is a kind of but as soon as as soon as you're aware that it might be happening, you do stuff, and which which un, 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 kind of unlocks it. But anyway, so there, the view from the back. It's 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 a, it's. I, I just can't get that out of my head. How powerful that is as a kind of idea that you have just got to imagine what it's like to be there. I love that, Tom. Just just a couple of um, reflections from me on this. Um, First one, I, I'm a big mini whiteboard fan, um, as, as a lot of listeners will know. One of the unsung advantages of using mini whiteboards is that it shows every child that their answer's valued. So the problem often with cold call is, you know, the only answer you hear from is is one child. And that's a bit dodgy from a checking for understanding perspective. But it also, like, I always think if you're a kid at the back, let's say you're Ollie, you sat at the back of the class, you've been thinking really hard about your answer to a question. And then the teacher picks Emma to answer. Well, Ollie might just think, well, what was the point in that? Whereas if Ollie gets to show his answer on the mini whiteboard, even though we may not use Ollie's answer, Ollie's had a chance to, you know, contribute and, and get it out there. So just to be seen a bit more, I think some tools of mass participation like mini whiteboards are, are great for that. And, and the other thing, I just wanted to reflect on a conversation I had with a teacher on Friday in a, in a school I was working at uh, in Stoke. We had a big chat about room layouts and in his school, it was all rows, which I'm traditionally a fan of, but he loved a horseshoe. 
And he said the reason he loved the horseshoe is because he could involve, you know, kids as much as possible. He could see all their faces. He could see where they were looking at. He was in the center of the room when they were talking. They were talking to more students than if, you know, they were just sat at the front talking in rows. Um, and it just made me think, again, I traditionally, I'm a big, big kind of row fan, but may, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm sold a bit more on the horseshoe after what he said and what, and what you're now saying, Tom. What do you reckon? Are we team horseshoe? My last year six class was a double horseshoe, Craig. Just like to go one better. And then, uh, but then in the middle of the horseshoe was my carpet area. <laughs> That's what I did in my classroom. So What's I, the double horseshoe? So you've got like a, big, like, a, a big horseshoe around the edge. Yeah. And then like a little one in the middle. So you can still walk between the two of them. And so you can see what's going on, but you can also have like a little focus group if you're going to teach a guided group with the little horseshoe there. And also a lot of the time in primary, we don't have set spaces. We don't have set seats either. So you, you teach on the carpet, you go away and you go away, we do whatever you want to do. So sometimes you'll have a set space, sometimes you won't. And so you don't get locked into that person that's always at the back and then or you can say right you five today sit there you th you sit there you sit there and you can actually f because children aren't wedded to a chair like that's my seat um it's much more fluid it's much more flexible but yeah I did have the double horseshoe with the carpet in the center which is why I burst out laughing when you said I love a horseshoe because I was thinking so do I Craig so I do I it. doubling down double horseshoe <laughs> love it horseshoes I in fact I saw a lesson in the summer term in a, in a secondary school which, which to me just reinforced the, the kind of the, the, all the stuff that Graham Nuttall talks about in Hidden Lives of Learners about kids having their little bubble. I mean, this lad was at a corner of, of a horseshoe. And so like he, he was like his, his attention was constantly drawn to the people kind of at the right angle. And so and, and, he, and he was like showman. He had to be he was like on the whole time. Ha 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 ha. Making eye contact, little banter. And I just thought, I almost felt sorry for him because I just thought like he, what he needs is someone to just let him off that and just turn around, focus on the, 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 the whatever was going on in the lesson. And he, but it, in his world, he was just, I thought it must be exhausting to have to be so like on entertainment mode all day long because you're, you've got this peer pressure on the, on the corner there. And again, it, he was in the back. So the teacher wasn't really noticing it. So yeah, for me, last time I sat in a horseshoe room, I just thought it wasn't working too well. So not for me. Well, not for year 11. If you're 11 and in my class, Tom, you'd have been all right. <laughs> you'd have loved it. Um um, I've just, I, I know, I know we could, we could, we could deep dive on all of these for ages. I just want to squeeze in one more question, Tom, for you, if that's okay, related to this before we go on to Emma's idea. Um, if this kind of, you know, students at the back is, is such a problem, is there an argument for kind of regularly changing seating plans? So kids are never at the back for too long and you move things around or is, is the kind of disruption not worth the potential benefits? No, I think, I think it is. I would, I would, I would say like, you know, in chunks of time, I think it'd be great, like, you know, a half turn, let's do a swap. And then I, w I do think that would be a good idea for, for various other reasons. Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, it doesn't mix it up that much. If you did it like week to week, it could be a bit tedious, but I, I would, I would, a, I think that's a good idea. Fantastic. Right. Emma, what idea have you been thinking about? It's not so much like a tip or an idea. It's just something that I am constantly talking about whenever I go to places at the minute with um, primary colleagues. And it's this idea of implied competences and intersubject dependence in primary. So 
very often we'll we'll go into maths and we'll say we're teaching maths or we go into history and we say we're teaching history. But actually in primary we're not because the children are novice in absolutely everything that underpins all the individual subjects. So when we're planning and say we're planning in history and we're planning a unit of work on ancient Rome, they actually have to be really proficient in the geography of Europe and they have to be proficient in numbers over a thousand. And then there's a small matter of them being able to read all the historical material. And then there's all the other stuff that maybe isn't even subject dependent, but it's things like manipulating equipment. So can they use scissors or use a ruler? Can they work effectively as an individual or as a group or part of a team? What kind of vocabulary do they need to, to know? Um, do they know how to interpret a table or a chart or a graph? All of these things that can kind of feed into task design that can completely derail a lesson. And I've seen so many lessons in geography fall apart because actually in primary, the children can't use scissors yet. <laughs> and they had to cut one thing out and the whole lesson goes to pieces. So the more I think about it, the more it's linked to cognitive load, the more it's, think, more it's linked to kind of novice to expert, the more it's linked to actually understanding how young children learn. And the fact that sometimes when we're planning in primary or planning for very young children, we don't take into account all of these implied competencies and this intersubject dependence when we're planning. And the more I talk about it to primary teachers, the more they're like, yep, <laughs> I recognise that, I get it. And I think potentially we need to unpick how we plan in primary to take into account all of those things when we're planning the curriculum and when we're delivering lessons that's my thing i'm thinking about love it tom i'll hand over to you first any, any reflections there and then on to ali i just feel tired just listening to that it's sort of like but i, I agree i mean I've, I've seen teachers do even in even in the secondary context do things like um you know assume everyone can draw the table okay let's have you know properties of you know different materials or solids liquids and gases or whatever it is advantages and disadvantages and you know three of the three of the students are still on pencil and ruler trying to do the columns of the table and haven't filled any of it in by the time the teacher's bringing them together to share what they put because of that assumption that the fundamental skill of being able to manipulate the tools to do the table is just a given and it isn't a given so I, I see that there, and it just means you've got to. It just doesn't just come down to kind of the whole thing of needing to have slightly less content to teach and just do it well. And and there's so much pressure to cover stuff, isn't there, that people rush through things, or to have resources ready and anticipate all that stuff so that students get scaffolded through it all. But yeah, I mean, it makes it. Emma makes a brilliant case for this. I've heard you talk about it several times. I just think it's we've gone through this path of like. Secondarification, is that the word of primary education? Secondarization of the primary setting. <laughs> that's it. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I, I think that's gone a bit far in that sense. Like it's there's a pull, there's a you're losing that integration, which is a really subtle thing, which doesn't get respected when we discuss specialism in that purest way. Love it, Ollie. Ollie anything from you, mate? <clears throat> yeah, I'm wondering, Emma, I think it's a really good point you've you've raised. 
this this idea as well as Tom's, they're both kind of related in in my mind to teacher awareness and teacher awareness of what's actually happening for students, how much is going on for them and so on. I'm wondering what... So, we can say to a teacher like, oh, there's implied competences and intersubject dependence in primary classrooms. But what does it take for a teacher to actually develop the sufficient awareness that when it comes to planning, they can actually line up the, if the way I talk about it, the, the elements of new information that the student has to deal with at any one time and plan to kind of avoid overwhelming them? Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is that you've got to set fire to your curriculum. (laughs) First of all, just get rid of huge, great swathes of it because there's just not enough time to get through it in the academic year. I think if you carve it up in in the English curriculum, you've got less than six days per year to teach all of the national curriculum content for one of the foundation subjects. It's absolutely insane the amount, the, the little small amount of time you've got. So cut that right back to the absolute essential things that you genuinely need to cover and then start to think about, okay, what's not on the curriculum that we actually need children to be proficient in and map that out. At what stage do we actually want them to be able to use a ruler and a pencil, a pair of scissors, you know, to be cutting a straight line, to cutting a curved line? When when do we want them to be able to work efficiently as part of a pair or as a group? When do we want them to be able to... Um, speak with confidence about asking for help or because <laughs> all of these things they're also novice in so that's like a almost like a hidden curriculum that needs to be planned as well alongside the subject specific curriculum and then unlike in secondary where the curriculum say the physics curriculum is planned by the the physics team in primary the primary curriculum has to be a collective endeavor because everybody has to know where that supporting content comes in so you can't just be the science lead in primary and just plan the science because your science is going to fall apart unless you've spoken to everybody else who's leading all of the subjects to work out where those implied competencies are so you actually need to see all of the curriculum mapped out and say does this actually line up it's like a, it's a little bit like a game of tetris really you have to sort of make sure all the blocks drop at the right time but it's moving away from that kind of single subject overview and actually seeing the multi-novice status of primary children as a kind of a, a completely different developmental approach by the time they leave primary you would hope the bulk of them are proficient readers proficient writers generally numerate and with a fairly decent amount of general knowledge But until they get to that point, they need a different way of working. Yes, you need academic rigour in the subject disciplines, but that needs to be planned alongside this kind of child development, human development, and like the hidden curriculum part, which needs to be that collective endeavour rather than a single subject approach. Interesting. Uh, I I just want to inquire a little bit of what you talked about in terms of stripping things back and mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the primary schools in Australia particularly that I've come across who are really really high performers I think they do what you were emphasizing in the second half of your answer there which is like being hyper specific about exactly all the things that students are going to learn mm-hmm. uh, both on the skills side which they deal with usually more through kind of a focus on routines and kind of automating mm-hmm. basic tasks for students so they don't become overwhelmed uh, but also like their maths curriculum will be super focused and well-specified English and so on. And they'll often allocate um, 
significant portions of time to like a daily review in maths, a daily review in in reading and writing and so on every morning. Uh, so I was wondering how that um, matches and, and, and they do kind of keep those subjects, maybe with all the kind of science and history and so on, they kind of really make sure that they connect and they do bring a lot of content from all those areas into, for example, the English space. But I think often the maths sits quite apart. So I was wondering um, if you if you've seen school primary schools be successful taking that approach um, into in, in your travels, because that's been an approach I've seen have a lot of success here in Australia. Flipping things back. Is that what you mean? Well, I said a lot of things then. So one thing is, um, well, you you said you said stripping things back yeah. um, to to just the bare bones, and I and and I guess I was coming back saying, um, I think, uh, maybe if we dissect that a little bit because okay. dif- that that means different things to different people, okay. um, and I've seen a lot of success with schools who maybe they strip back the fluff, but really they actually have a pretty chock-a-block curriculum, particularly in the maths and English space, and it's highly specified as well. It's because a lot of stuff doesn't have equivalent curriculum currency. So say, for example, in year six over here, we've got an objective about knowing the properties of an isosceles trapezium. Great. Symmetry, line, properties of quadrilaterals, angle, talk for ages about it. Very interesting, lovely doesn't have the same curriculum currency as being fluent in the four operations or knowing FDPRP equivalences. They really need to know that. So you kind of need to be able to triage each aspect of the curriculum, say this is the stuff which is really, really important. If you don't get this, you're in a hiding to nowhere. Another example would be in year one, knowing your number bonds to 20. And then you've got another one, which is like record information in a pictogram. Well, the pictogram is not going to be the hill you're going to die on in year one. It just isn't. Um, so it's knowing that curriculum and knowing which are the important bits, because a lot of the time they're presented as a list and they're presented as of equal value and they're not. So it's knowing as a teacher and as a subject leader or as a leader in the school saying, right, there's all this that we're going to cover, but actually this bit they've got to really secure. And that's not always articulated particularly efficiently when you're planning a curriculum, it's like, let's plan, let's do all of this stuff because it's statutory. Yeah, it's statutory, but it's not equal. So it's having that understanding of what's the most important bit. And then that's where you build your assessment systems from because you assess the bits they need to be proficient in, not the things that are nice to know. Um, and that's where you focus your teaching, your interventions, your assessments. All of that is on that, ty- that smaller part. You still teach everything, but you probably don't give it as much emphasis but it's knowing those bits there. And that enables you to free up the curriculum to actually focus on the things that will, that are generally generally useful to the children. doesn't mean you, you narrow it. It just means you change the emphasis and change the teaching time. Got it. That makes heaps of sense. Thanks for that, that clarification. Jeez, flipping out. The, the only thing I wanted to add here, and I'll just throw this open, is this is probably reason 93 why you, there's not enough money in the world to make me a primary school teacher. It's, it'd be a flipping nightmare. It's just... So just to, just to ask, well, Ollie and Tom, would would you swap? Would there be any anything that would cause you to go into primary? And Emma, would, would what are you doing? Would you not swap and go secondary? So Tom, let me ask you first. Any interest? Um, it's funny. I, I, Tom, I generally can... no, generally no, because I feel like I get too much joy out of sort of. I mean, if I had to pick, I just I love doing you know, the science and maths and teaching at that level. But I have seen some primary teaching recently where I just thought there's something about the relationship the teachers have with the students with their class which is just 
it's just on another level. And I saw I saw the school back in May June where there's you know quite a lot of teachers to compare as a big big school. And I was thinking literally class to class, especially like we know with the year fives and sixes, for example, there's a rapport, this bond that they had. It's like that is that is immense. Like to feel that sense of rapport with a teacher and the student. I see you every day, all day. And it's that kind of this loving that they all had with their own students. I just thought that is pretty amazing. I and mean, you could see the teachers really loved it. Um, that they had this feeling. And t- secondary teachers have that a bit, but never the same, I would say, as that that um through that through the intensity. But it all <laughs> but it is intense. I actually like to say to sort of have a bit of a down and go, okay next class in I, I i find that intensity overwhelming to me to be honest so you have to kind of be ready for it especially if you get a yeah. bit of a class that's not that's a, a little bit harder one year yeah. some, some, some years you get classes you're like i could spend all day every day with you guys you're amazing and then there's other years where you think i'm ever so glad it's july <laughs> <laughs> that's been quite the journey with, that's been quite the journey we've all been on hasn't it <laughs> that's good that's good go on what about you second yeah yeah i'll second what tom was saying i think the the main thing one of the main things that would draw me over is kind of the the potential for those relationships um but as well as working with some amazing teams especially like in australia the vast majority of the schools that i look up to are primary schools often in disadvantaged areas where the the leadership is just really switched on to the kind of thing that Emma was talking about before, thinking about what do these students really need to kind of set themselves up um, from the self-regulation space right through to the the maths and and being able to read and so on. And they're just hyper-focused and they just drive for that and they literally do change change young young people's lives and and set them off for success. So that's pretty amazing and being part of that I think could be pretty exciting. but also, I actually, um, I actually applied for a primary job uh, once, and I got as far to, as as teaching a a sample lesson. I ended up withdrawing my um, my application because I think I just got a bit overwhelmed and thought I'm not sure if I can handle this all day, every day thing. Um, and a, a, another opportunity, good opportunity came up. But I, but I was at one point very seriously considering it, and did enjoy teaching the sample lesson as well. Um, it was a daily review for about two hours of maths and English uh, in the morning. So um, I did entertain a possibility at one point, Craig. If you go back, Holly, I'll give you the best piece of advice as a primary teacher that I was given on my very first day of placement. Never tie a wet shoelace. (laughs) Yeah, no, right. (laughs) That served me very well as a primary teacher. There we go. That's the kind of gold listeners are tuning in for. That's lovely. Love it, Emma. Love it, love it. Right, um, Ollie, what have you been thinking about recently? Um, I've been thinking about a very interesting approach to education, and I wanted to start this one by by quizzing each of you a little bit. And I, f- I, first of all, I knew nothing about this before the last like fortnight or whatever. So, and I'm expecting most people not to know anything, but I just want to get a bit of an idea. Um, Craig, what do you know? if anything, about Montessori education. Oh, right. Okay. So I, I, I'm aware of it um, only because there was, <laughs> to be careful in case they're listening here, a friend of a friend um, absolutely bangs on about it all the time. And when he was describing it to me, I thought that sounds horrendous. Um, so I know in my head, it kind of triggers things like 
kind of learning by play, discovery, that that kind of side of things. But yeah, and look, I've got to be really careful what I say. I might have to edit this. Sounds a bit, almost like a bit of a cult. I'm going to chuck that in the mix there. That'll lose a load of listeners, but it, it doesn't matter anyway. So that's the kind of thing I've heard. But yeah, I'll, I'll move on before I get into more trouble. Thanks, Craig. Uh, Emma, have, what have you heard about Montessori? Of course I've heard of Montessori. It's very, very popular in nurseries and preschool and early education. It is very highly play-based. It is based on kind of child development theory and how very young, how the very young learn. I've not seen it in a setting beyond about the age of four or five, but it's very, very popular in nurseries. And I know that some nurseries are for want of a better word, branded as a Montessori nursery because they follow the Montessori method with fidelity. Um, Other places will say they follow a Montessori type method, but they're not necessarily a Montessori setting. Um, And they will take some of the key parts of Maria Montessori's work. But um, yeah, it's it's play-based. It's not necessarily discovery learning. It's kind of collaborative play-based learning for very young children. Mm. Mm. And Tom? Oh gosh, I mean, I've been aware of it for, for, forever. Like with kids going to primary school, and <clears throat> there's 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 a primary primary school quite near me where it's people go, but it's always the sort of one where uh, it, it's a kind of like private school rather than a, a state school, so people elect into it, and it always gets associated, you know, in stereotypical ways with kids having being very verbal and having lots of freedom, and then. Then they go to another. Then they go to another school later to learn how to kind of read and write, kind of thing. And that's not true, of course. But you know, that that's what people talk about it. So you go, they, you send them there for a certain type of thing, and then teach them the proper stuff later. But that is, you know, now now I'm going to get like killed. But it, I don't really know anything about it from my hands up. So all I know about it is kind of like based on prejudice and stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. So, my my understanding of Montessori was pretty much exactly the same as as all of yours, and particularly um, particularly Craig's, I'd say um, beforehand. So, the the cult bit uh, rang true for me, and probably probably still does, to be honest. Um, but um, but but also the play based thing and and so on. Um, but I was asked to give a keynote at the National Montessori Conference here in Australia which I gave on Saturday, actually. And so I thought, if I'm going to do this talk um, on cognitive load theory, I better relate it to Montessori education in some way, and I better actually do do a bit of research. So I've actually, in the last couple of weeks, I've explored some books, I've read, listened to a bunch of podcasts, and I also actually visited a Montessori primary school. And so this is from, like, early years up to grade six when the students are about um, 11 or 12 or so. And... I was really amazed, right? And this is for a few reasons. The, the first one that's probably most interested to a lot of listeners here is that Montessori curriculum is actually the original knowledge-rich curriculum. I mean, to be honest, there might, might have been something a bit earlier, earlier in like Greek times or something like that. But as far as what I've been able to trace. So, Maria Montessori, born in, I think it was 1870. I'll check my notes there. Yep, 1870. She actually specified exactly how to teach every concept 
within her curriculum. And she's got these massive books. And what Montessori education looks like, well, sorry, Montessori teacher education. So, you know, in our teacher education, or particularly in mine, they're like, all right, you're a maths teacher. We're going to teach you about teaching. You're going to have something on social emotional learning. You're going to have something on curriculum in general. You're going to have blah, blah, blah. And then we're going to allocate a couple of hours a week to teaching you how to actually teach maths. And we might teach you how to teach con- 10 concepts over the whole span of your, your master's in education. In Montessori education, each teacher compiles an album that is an album for each subject, which is A4 and about, you know, the as wide as your thumb is long. So, it's like a massive tome. I'm trying to describe it for listeners. Um, That specifies with scripting how to teach every concept that they're going to teach. They also um, specialize. So, they say, in, in primary, it might be I'm going to, they have cycle one, cycle two, and cycle three, which is like um, grouped year levels. And so, each year, each of those cycles contains about three year levels and each year, one of them leaves at the top and you get one, one in, in the bottom, which is really good for um, controlling the culture of your classroom, for example, and kind of hopefully Emma avoids that, oh, oh I had that, that class this year kind of an issue. Um, and so, they specialize a cycle and they, they learn how to teach every single concept within that cycle. Now, what it actually looks like in the classroom is teachers do this thing called a presentation, which is basically an explicit instruction lesson where they introduce students to a particular like an apparatus. I don't know, they've got a Montessori name for it, but it's like basically an activity or something that's generally hands-on that represents it represents the idea. I'm thinking more about math- mathematics here. And then they set the students on to play with that apparatus and to basically help them to automate the skill that they're doing. So, it might be division and they might have, um, in fact, I, I watched students do division and they had like a little booklet where they were recording things and then they'd get like 12 counters and it, the thing would be 12 divided by two and they'd share them between two imaginary kind of little token people and they'd do that, record the results and so on. So, basically, I was amazed at the fact that every single concept has been specified how it's going to be taught. There, is, there are specific materials associated with every concept. Every teacher plans how to teach every specific concept. And there's actually an explicit lesson that's given to the students. I was like amazed. And then the icing on the cake for me, I'm doing my, my PhD in self-regulated learning. Uh, and what that means in concrete terms is next year, we're running an, a project at our school to try to get all our, for example, 13 to 18 year old male students because it's an all boys school to like keep a di- keep a calendar and a diary to actually keep themselves organized that's part of the program but when i walked into this school i went i visited cycle two in particular and this is kids from about um i'm not particularly good with primary school kids ages but let's say around the, the nine-year-old mark and what these students do at the start of the day is they go in and they make a plan for their day so there is a lot of freedom but they actually make a plan so like at 9 a.m i'm going to do maths at 10 o'clock, I'm going to do zoology. At 11 o'clock, we've got a class meeting. And at, you know, 2.30, we're doing a whole school, a dis- whole, whole class dissection of a fish. Um, and they'll, they'll actually kind of really stick to their plan and check in with their teacher throughout the day. So, the fact that the level of self-regulation absolutely was amazing to me. So, yeah, it's been a really, really interesting journey for me the last couple of weeks. I, I don't think I'm going to become a Montessori teacher or anything like that because I don't think every school is going to become Montessori every t- anytime soon. And so, I think my, my impact would be uh, a bit limited. But I think there's actually a lot that mainstream could learn um, from Montessori and a pick 
particularly around the specificity with which they train their teachers. So there's a there's a massive rant for you. Um, uh, curious to hear uh, what people have to say. Emma, you go first on this one. There are lots of parallels with continuous provision in foundation stage over here, that there will be periods of direct instruction from the teacher and then there will be opportunities for the children to choose which areas of the classroom they go to and the teacher will have set out specific areas. Um, Some of them are for the prime areas of learning, which are there all the time. So they don't get changed. Well, they don't don't get changed. They do, but they they are there all the time. But then there is the enhanced provision, which is additions to the provision in the room, which link to potentially children's fascinations or what the teacher has just taught. And so the children will get opportunities to play with, replicate, practice what the teacher's just been showing in the kind of whether it's a whole class direct instruction or whether it's kind of a a group in, uh, instruction. But they get that opportunity to apply it in multiple novel contexts, which to me seems really obvious. And it's something that potentially you could replicate with slightly older children um, in that you've taught it, you've had a go at it, but then you're having a go at it in lots of different ways. In lots of di- So you're looking at it from multiple different angles. So there are lots of parallels with foundation stage over here in terms of the types of provision that we have. It's not necessarily the whole scripted Montessori, this is, this is how we do it. I always want to say Montel Jordans, this is how we do it whenever I say that, that this is how we do it. Um, it's not like that, but lots of parallels, lots of things that you would recognise potentially in really good, high quality foundation stage continuous provision have lots of links with the Montessori method. And because children choose where they want to go most of the time during foundation stage, that replicates that kind of model there. And it's also something which I know a lot of authorities around here, we're taking continuous provision to year two and beyond because they recognise that for very young children, sitting in rows or seats all day, whether it be a horseshoe or a row, it's not developmentally appropriate, especially for younger children, especially for the younger summer borns in year one and two as well. They still benefit from that other thing. So I do recognise what you're talking about, although it doesn't have necessarily complete fidelity with the Montessori method. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so two, two other things that I thought helped to make that kind of approach work um, one was it's it's really mastery based. So the students, they actually are all working at different things at different times and they will come to the teacher when they feel like they've mastered that concept or that activity and they'll say, Miss Sir, actually they, at the school I visit, they use first names, Craig, I think I understand this division of, of these numbers now. Um, I think I'm ready for the next thing. And Craig will say, okay, can you show me and talk me through um, that and the student will do that and then I say okay yep you're ready and then they'll move them to the next task within the developmental progression the other thing that probably was one of the most impactful ideas to me was every um, activity is specifically designed to be self-correcting so a student can't sit there and do a hundred sums incorrectly right and this relates back to what we were talking about last lesson or last lesson should I say last podcast Craig <laughs> about um Goal, the goal-free effect and there has, how there has to be um, kind of rapid feedback and reliable results. You can't have students sitting there for hours doing the wrong thing. Because of the fact that they make everything concrete with manipulatives, the students can naturally see, and this is one of the design principles of Maria Montessori's work, if they do make a mistake and they go, oh, hold on, this peg doesn't fit in this hole, what's going on here? And it prompts them. Now, I think the fact that everything is manipulative-based 
can be restrictive because not everything is best taught with manipulatives. And I did see some concepts. I actually went to a maths PD around teaching secondary maths through the Montessori um, approaches. And I saw some things, things and I thought, oh, it's probably not the way I'd do it, but I can see why they did that because they're trying to make it kind of concrete based, but it's probably not ideal. So th- I think there's obviously downsides, but I, I think that design, well, those two design principles, mastery based and self-correcting are, are really quite powerful as well. Tom, any reflections on Montessori? It's interesting. So, I, I, what I feel is, it's always a risk to project beyond the, the kind of the the kind of pr- the zone where something is effective and is known to be into other areas. So, I, I, I always get a bit twitchy when people say, "You know, why can't secondary be more like that or something?" And you just think, "Well, because because they're older. There's different ways of learning. That you, there's different requirements of the knowledge that they need to learn." And it just would be a nightmare to do that. And I, and the closest I've ever come to that, it, it, it reminds me of the discussion I had once with Dylan William about teaching the smile math system in the 80s, which we both did. He loved it. I hated it. <laughs> and it's because he knew it and I didn't. And so I, I like, I felt like I was just the administrator of a pros, of a program rather than the maths teacher. Like you hardly ever could teach the whole class at the same time. You spent the whole time sort of issuing cards and saying, Oh, well done. You've done those. Right now, go off and do this now. And then where are you up to? Okay, now now do these cards. And you kind of, you're kind of like supervising some people doing some stuff on their tables, but you weren't really like, it was so hard to sort of engineer class discussion because people were off doing their own thing the whole time. So it, I, I think it was transferring. I always think, well, why, why? Just let it be what it is in its place. The last thing, comment I have it, I was thinking of this place I went to once, um, British School of Muscat in Oman, which is a, a great school, and they, they showed me this amazing assessment process I have in their um, primary phase in their early years, where they, I thought it was really clever, they have three students you track for a week, and um, and there are 24 kids in the class, so that you get like an eight-week cycle, and every so every parent gets like three of these reports a year, where the teacher has tracked you for the whole week, and they, what they produce is this beautiful record of their kind of stuff like what they wrote what they made what the what they did and they only had to focus on three students in the week so it was really intensive and the, the parents would have then the compare them the first one the second one and the third one and they showed me the difference between them and you think wow by the end of the year you see these three kind of like in-depth trackers of your kid and you just see the progression and it's so rich in information about your child's progress but it was only possible because the teachers were light touch focusing and photographing and i thought it was a brilliant way of of assessing in a workload savvy way the kids doing all this stuff and showing parents what kind of free flow play and this was a school where all the all the classrooms are interconnected and the kids could <laughs> it's like four four men they could be in any of the rooms it was like it was big it was like free flow times four so like, I, I thought it was bedlam i couldn't cope <laughs> but it was all the teacher said, no, it's not. It's, and we know exactly what's going on. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm sure you do. But I, I just thought, oh, man, where are the rows? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Couldn't agree more, Tom. I, I, and, I, and I don't think this is an approach that is particularly scalable um, with our current resources and current focus anyway within education. Mm. Um, and it's one thing I failed to mention earlier that kind of plays into your point there, Tom, is that every classroom has two adults in it. One is the teacher 
and they have an instructional focus and the other is the assistant and they have like a behavioral and management focus. So all that stuff Emma was talking about earlier about, you know, the kids who struggle to cut or whatever it might be or, you know, they're having a disagreement with someone, whatever it might be. Um, there is an assistant in the classroom that deals with all that to f- which f- frees up the teacher um, for this instructional focus, which which is a great privilege for the teacher. And a lot of the assistants are kind of doing their apprenticeship to then become teachers. So it's a really nice kind of apprenticeship model there. Uh, but yeah, coming back to, I think there are some things we can take away without like trying to take the whole model. Things like the specificity of teacher training and concepts um, that li- links back to lots of what we've talked about, Craig, in terms of shared lesson plans and so on. The idea of tasks being self-correcting, you know, I'm sure lots of us have been in classes and watched students kind of do the wrong thing for a long time. Um, and the idea of the fa- how much students can actually do when we do scaffold them towards a self-regulated approach. And, you know, that was interesting. The principal said, people come to this school and they see how self-regulated our students are and they go away and they give their students the same level of freedom and expect them to be successful. But they don't see the multiple years that we've actually carefully scaffolded these students to, to be able to a nine-year-old sit down at the start of the day and think, how am I going to spend my time today? So you can't just dive in the deep end. You really have to systematically build it. Um, yeah, Craig, over to you. I'm just thinking, I think we found something that's lower on my list of uh, job wants than primary school teacher, which is Montessori primary school teacher. This sounds absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. Just, yeah, you, you kind of have me a bit until this kind of plan your day idea, but it's, it, you're right there, all Like it's, I'm thinking of kids that I've taught who haven't had all this kind of, you know, training for want of a better phrase, support into how to be self-regulated learners but yeah but no I think you're right taking out those yeah it's it's what we can learn from it right and it's yeah particularly that self-correcting and that yeah developing kids to be a bit more self-regulated that sounds that sounds sensible yeah but I I won't be won't be signing up to a Montessori uh, anytime soon no that's great that all that's great I'm 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 I'm, I'm just going to quickly open up does anyone want to say anything more directive (laughs) against this because if there's any, or, or like if anyone wants to be like, actually, Ollie, I think what you're saying is really dangerous and the listeners need to ignore this part of what he said because it's going to send our education system off a cliff or anything like that. I just wanted to open that up or, or, or put that invite out there because um, I think it's good to have the robust chat. I think, you know, the practices in Montessori, like I say, are very similar to what works with very young children and the fact that you've got kind of guided tasks and guided play and children being young children making decisions about what they're going to do within the provision as well because you've got children at four who are very self-regulated in terms of their learning accesses and the provision within a foundation stage continuous provision model and then as they move through they lose the opportunity to apply that self-regulation because the lessons become more constrained and more controlled by the adult for a multitude of different reasons lots of different reasons why that happens but I think one of the things that we lose sight of is the fact that they were capable at four of actually being quite self-regulated and and to manage their own time and to manage their own learning with very little intervention and I think potentially one of the things that we do is we underestimate how much children can actually um self-regulate and think about their learning and think about that because it be, because the curriculum becomes so unwieldy and it becomes so big and there's so much to get through that we that we want to rattle on at pace uh, and there isn't necessarily the space for them to to work in a way that was actually very familiar to them when they were very young um 
So I don't think I don't think that Montessori is like the devil incarnate. Definitely not. There are elements of it which are which are wonderful and applicable to multiple settings. But I I don't think you say like you say it's it's not immediately scalable if children haven't been through that system. But I don't think it should be kind of put a, <laughs> that it's wrong. It's just um, it's not suitable for all settings for all children at all stages with all statutory curricula. But it is a way that very obviously works. For a lot of children and is very familiar to the work if you work with very young children. And I, I guess my main thing here was that the reason why I wanted to share this today is because I've been on a really interesting journey of my prior understanding of Montessori as being basically not very evidence-based, being play-based, inefficient, every, like choose your own adventure every day to my understanding that now with kind of these design principles, self-corrective mastery, um, and all the other stuff I've talked about. And I just think that's a really interesting example of what often happens in education. You know, the vision from the outside of an approach is like, oh yeah, it's just this thing that's not worth looking at. But when you actually delve into it, it's like, well, actually someone's thought pretty deeply about this. And there are people mimicking it and doing a horrendous job, no doubt. But we shouldn't base our judgments on those instantiations. We it, And going deep often leads, leads to learning that we can take and apply more broadly. Love it, Ollie. Love it. Good one, that one. Right, I'll do my one if, if that's okay. So for the benefit of Emma and Tom, one thing that oft, well, one thing that's kind of come up a couple of times in mine and Ollie's monthly chats is things that sound good in research, but Craig can't make them work in the classroom, right? So previous uh, installments in this series have been, Ollie's already alluded to one, goal-free problems. Sound great. I've messed them up. Ollie's given me a bit of a good advice on that. And then last month, we talked about backwards faded worked examples, how I've struggled with that. We had a big chat about that. And Ollie, just a bit of info for you. Dave Taylor, who runs the backwards faded worked examples website, he's coming on the podcast to tell me how to make it work. So that's, that's coming up soon. So Amazing. example number three of something that sounds good in theory, but I can't make it work. And I want help from you three is this idea of pre-testing. So I'll give a bit of an overview, and this is hot, hot off the press because there's a brand new paper on this out. So I'll just give you a bit of background. I'll tell you where I've messed up, and then I'll throw it over to you guys and you can help me out here. So for the benefit of listeners, pre-testing um, is different from testing prerequisite knowledge. So whereas testing prerequisite knowledge will be, think of all the things kids have met before that are going to be useful for them to know to better understand this new idea, pre-testing is, is essentially testing them on things that they very little hope in knowing before you teach it them. And then through something that almost feels like a bit of magic, by doing that pre-test, when you then teach them the thing, they seem to understand it more, they seem to retain it more and so on. Now, there's a brand new, the reason this is fresh in my mind is a brand new studies come out uh, in September from um, Elizabeth Bjork and, and Nick Soderstrom, who often do, do a load of stuff on memory. It's called uh, Pre-Testing Enhances Learning in the Classroom. And the big selling point of, of this study is it's classroom-based, but in inverted commas. It's, it's not your normal lab stuff, but it is done with college students. So already you've got to be kind of a, a little bit careful with, with any implications. So they did it with psychology method students and they asked them a load of multiple choice questions that they they really haven't got a hope of, of, of understanding. And again, the success rate of getting these questions right in the pretest was really, really low, like 20%, 22% and so on and so forth. But the kids who were then given this pretest, and then obviously there was a control group that weren't, they were all taught the same thing. 
the kids who were given the pre-test absolutely nail the kind of post-test. But what, what's also interesting, they nailed questions that were exactly the same as the one on the pre-test or testing the same knowledge, but they also then seemed to transfer it to other questions that test related knowledge, but not the same kind of directed knowledge. So it seems really strong, this pre-test. And again, it's been replicated tons and tons of times, but I'll tell you what I've tried and how it bombed. And then I've got kind of four questions on this. Then I'll shut up and I'll just see what you guys make of it. All right. So here's what I did. <laughs> this was bad. So when I went through my kind of mid-career crisis, when I was writing my, my, my first book and I came across this pre-test effect, I thought this is going to be great, this. So I had a year nine class and I was going to teach them expanding double brackets. They'd never expanded a double bracket before in their life. So I thought, here's a good idea. I'll give them a test, which has some double brackets for them to expand, right? So half the kids were like, what the hell's this? Like, I've never seen this before in my life. I give up. And then the other kids were expanding it completely wrong. So embedding a few misconceptions. They were like missing out terms left, right and center. So then I was kind of sifting through the wreckage for the next kind of lesson or so saying, and I wanted to say, let's just pretend that didn't happen, right? Because that was obviously, obviously a bad idea. So that was my attempt at a pretest, and it definitely didn't work. So here are my four questions on this, right? So question one, I you've got surely you've got to be careful you don't embed misconceptions. Surely question selection is really, really important here because you don't want kids practicing the wrong thing before they've had a chance to do the right thing. Secondly, motivation feels really important with this. Like I think if you I often talk about this that things like productive failure, they it seems to work if the kids have got an experience that struggle leads to success. But I'm sure we've all taught kids for whom they're just used to struggle. And when they struggle, they think, oh, this is another thing I don't get. And pre-testing just feels like it's got that potential that, all right, you've given me something I haven't got a bloody clue how to do, I give up. Whereas some kids I could imagine, maybe, all right, this is a challenge, I don't know how to do this. Now I'm really interested if you go ahead and teach it me. But I think motivation's got to be a factor. Um, third thing is, I think the kids have got to take it seriously. And this is in the abstract, actually, of this study. that They make a key point about this. All the kids in this study took the pretest really seriously. They tried really hard. Whereas you could imagine some kids looking at this thinking, what, what is the point in this? What the hell's this? No effort goes in. So, you know, potentially nothing happens as a result of that. And my fourth question, then I'll recap these four, is does this work in maths? Is maths a bit of an outlier here where because maths is kind of right or wrong and because maths has a lot of procedures going on, can you really test the kid on a procedure that they've not been taught and hope that somehow that's going to have some positive effect when they are actually taught it? Or does it only work more with kind of humanity-based, you know, more subjective questions? So to recap, here's my big four. Surely, surely question selection for misconceptions has got to be important. Surely some kind of effect on motivations in there. Do the kids have to take it seriously? And is this just a no-go in maths? So if you just solve that for me, that'd be amazing. Emma, I'm coming to you first, and I'm going to Tom, then I'm going to Ollie. Emma, pre-testing, have you dabbled in this? Well, yes and no. Um, in that before I ever taught any unit of work, especially in maths, on the Friday, I would do a kind of what do we already know. Mm -hmm. But it, that kind of links to your pre um prerequisite knowledge but I throw I would literally throw up a couple of questions ago how would you solve that what would you have a, well how would you start that and it was more of a kind of a 
information gathering for me mm-hmm. about where children really were rather than actually having a go and getting it wrong. Um, we've done it a little bit more in literacy where lots of schools do this thing called a cold write. Watch my face when I say that, cold write. When they, when they, they get children For the benefit of listeners, Emma way. is not beaming here when she says this. <laughs> Because they're, they're sort of, they said, right, we're, we're going to teach um, how to write, uh, in, you know, journalistic writing. We've never done it before, but we're going, to, we're going to have a go at doing it. So have a go yourself and see what you think. And that's the cold write. And then they teach all how to do kind of journalistic writing. And then they do a piece at the end and that's their hot write. And then they compare the two pieces. So I don't know whether, well, I'm not a massive fan of that. It's like, you haven't taught it yet. Of course they won't know it. You've never, they've never taught, been taught how to write like a journalist. How would they magically know it? But as you were talking, I was thinking, stay with me when I go on this analogy, it's a little bit like primer before you put your makeup on. It's not the actual makeup, but it just gets the skin ready for the makeup. <laughs> thinking maybe this is where this is going, that actually it's nothing to do with teaching the actual content. It's just starting off that thought process of, oh, I've seen something like this before. Oh, that might look like that. So when you're actually presenting it for the first time, it's not completely cold. It's not completely, you know, alien. Yeah. But I, I think I, you're right. I think, I th- oh, sorry, Emma, just on that priming whilst it's yeah. fresh in my head. I, I, I think you're right. I think that is one of the kind of mechanisms. But again, like if, if it's embedded misconceptions already, and if the, if it's had a detrimental effect on motivation, I just can't see how it that any potential priming would, would outweigh those two things, if that makes sense. This is why I had a bit of a sneer with the cold right thing, because I'm like, <laughs> for exactly that. Um, but the other thing is, I think, has it got a link potentially to hypercorrection? As in, if children have a go for the first time and absolutely are convinced that they were right, that when you then teach it for that second time, there's a link to the hypercorrection effect. Potentially, I am massive conjecture there massive hypothesis were there but I, I i can't see how it would be great in maths other than saying you had a go you, you were wrong because i hadn't taught it yet which seems blindingly obvious to me and i but then the motivation thing with younger children most young children think they're great at everything so they're very motivated to have a go and will probably still argue with you that they were right anyway and you were wrong <laughs> have a go at it so it's interesting that you said it's only tested on older children uh, older students and and young adults i'd be interested to see what the what the effect was with very young children because most children will just have a stab at something and have a go um and and will continue to to carry on even if they they feel like they're getting it wrong because um most young children get most things wrong all the time because they're mega novice in everything so they're quite used to getting stuff wrong all the time (laughs) Love it, Emma. What do you think, Tom? Have, have you done a bit of pre-testing? I feel like, like you know, you, we all said really that there's the kind of the pre-knowledge test to see what students already know. But I, I've seen it. So it made me think of a couple of things. One of them was, I remember seeing a, a presentation by Mark McCourt talking about this concept of bridging, where, you know, you ask the students a question first and then it gets them to see whether or not they think they can do it or whether they can. And then when you say, okay, well, now let me show you. And there is that sense of being more attuned to find out. And, and that links to some uh, discussions that I've had with Efrat first and blogs that she's written uh, about um, prediction and verification. And there is a, there's something there where if you think, like like in science, you might just say, you know, will, this, will the paper clip float or sink? 
or you know, will the massive heavy wax candle float or sink? And you can be confounded by the fact that the heavy thing floats and the light thing sinks. But your kind of prediction of what might happen then makes you think harder about whether you're right or wrong and reinforces that. And so she, she talks a lot about how prediction is, you know, kind of how we've kind of developed our thinking generally, like you reinforce patterns. But if your predictions are wrong, you you really do have to reevaluate why, and, and you're more likely to do that. If, if a pretest has got some aspect of anticipating that, and it's 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 sort of fueling that that element, but then for that to work, like you say, I think it would need to be the language and some of the scenarios would need to be familiar enough that you could have at least established it. If it was just sort of totally alien knowledge, I think that would just be quite a weird thing. And the only time I've seen a teacher try to do this is in a school where they were doing the science department policy, which I tried to influence to change. <laughs> I think I succeeded. Because they thought it was all about measuring progress. So it had a sort of horrible kind of like accountability thing, which was, we'll give them a test at the beginning. They'll all do really badly. And then we'll give them the same test at the end of the unit. And they'll do much better. And then we're going to show that they made progress. <laughs> I was in the lesson where they were doing this pre-test. It was like half an hour long. I was walking around going, this is a nightmare. Look, it's, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you for free now. They don't know any of the answers. Like, <laughs> just writing garbage or just going blank, blank, blank. This is a terribly depressing way to start off a unit of science. I would say just don't do it. Like, why do you need to prove they started from nothing and now they know stuff in this kind of way? So to me, I, I've never seen it done in a way that test is suggested. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes... The, the, some of like the desirable difficulty stuff, their, their studies there, like, you know, they start off with, and I know you said it was classroom-based, but the, I think you need really, really need to extract the principle, don't you? Like like with interleaving, you know, there's, there's some research around, you know, like can you label all these groups of butterflies and stuff? And they've done, they've done it with other things, but taking the essence of the study and then saying like, how does that work in here? It's such an important thing to try. This is what you're, why we're having this discussion. And I, I really feel like I don't get the principle that therefore I'd be reluctant to, t to muck about with it. I don't understand why it would work and I'd need to before I would do it. It's really interesting, Tom. Well, what do you think, Al? Craig, did they, did they actually specify the hypothesized mechanism within the study? No, no. Well, no, unless, again, unless I've missed it. Um, but no, I, I <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. We'll, we'll have to go back to that. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, what what is it that may? Why would that work? Coming back and building on what Tom was saying, you know, if we want to actually apply this elsewhere, we need to understand oh, the Ollie, mechanism Ollie, behind it. Understand. Ollie, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I yeah, I've got it here. I've missed it. I have missed it because I've skipped one of the. I have skipped one of the pages to get one of the references. So I've got it here. Shall I just quote you this? Two mechanisms. Okay. Go on, go on Increased attentional processing during class. So I guess that's kind of the motivational piece and you'll be well up for this one enhanced self-regulated study outside of class okay interesting yeah oh so there was it wasn't all in one lesson so pre-test and then it's um the series of lectures and then it's post-test oh, whole unit of work yeah yeah oh that's interesting and this was actually done in an actual College. school was it right? not, not like a uh, fascinating 
Okay. Because there have been like pre-testing effects shown in like a lab over a shorter period of time. You know, you give give a pre-test, then you give a lesson. That's really interesting. So when I was thinking about this and what the mechanisms might be, there were kind of two that came to mind. I didn't think about that self-regulating one and I'd be keen to delve into that more because I still don't admit, just by saying it, I don't immediately understand how that might be. But the first one was kind of what Emma was talking about in terms of that hypercorrection effect or kind of just priming students to say, you know, the idea of a knowledge gap, you know, by me saying, what do you know about Montessori education? Hopefully that made listeners go, oh, what do I know about Montessori education? And then they, you know, listened much more when, when I started to ramble on about it for about 15 minutes. Um, so that's the first thing. But the second thing I thought the benefit this might be having is it might be actually helping students construct some sort of a schema by giving them a bit of a sense of what's actually contained in this unit so if it's like oh when was the battle of xyz they're like okay so there's something to do with a battle here who was the ruler at the time blah, blah. okay so there was a ruler and there was a battle and blah, blah. and so they're going on you know who was the opponent and so there's a ruler there's a battle there's an opponent whatever it might be and so when they actually come across the information it's kind of like an advanced organizer and there's already been a bit of schema building going on so they can kind of slot information into more of a structure at the start um, that's a hypothesis if that is part of the mechanism then the question comes back to um, kind of what Tom was talking about is it if that's part of the mechanism is there a better way to achieve that and are we better to just kind of give them an advanced organizer at the start or kind of sketch out some of the the knowledge structures um, you know if that is part of the mechanism then that would explain yeah so you go Tom yeah, I was thinking because when you said that, I, I, when you mentioned the knowledge of, I was thinking it's like in some of the training I do to sort of for memory stuff. I sort of you know you you, you have a, a set of information, and then you you can look at it and you can just say, look, there it is. Like keep looking at that. What what do these words mean? And even say them and talk about them while while it's present, and then you test it. And it's even after having it there, people can't remember it, even though it's just there minutes ago, and they spent ages talking about it. So I'm thinking that maybe what this pre-testing thing does is it, it reveals to you right from the off that you you're not you you're not deluded about the fact that you know stuff like you don't know it like and you're more sharply attuned to the fact that here's stuff you don't know and so you don't fall into that familiarity trap of maybe of thinking oh I recognise this I'm familiar with it you think no I really don't when I was tested I did not know this so I'm thinking I don't want to be caught out a second time so you're more like into it which has those things that you described as those mechanisms. I can see that. That makes sense, more sense to me now. And when you mentioned the, the not the the kind of organiser thing, I think sometimes those get blanded out and the students look at them and they think, oh, I could read this if I wanted to, but I'm not actually reading it because I don't feel I really need to. Tom, you've just reminded 100%. me of something that I do on one of my courses about when we do um, some work around extended mind was I... I gave all the delegates a list of terms, a list of kind of vocabulary that we've been covering, and I got them to grade themselves. Like I've heard, the first one was, I've heard this before, but I can't explain it. <laughs> and the next one is, I've heard it before, I can, I, I can explain it to my friend. The next one is, I've heard it before, and I could stand at the front and teach this. And the other one was, this is I completely new. And it was really interesting what people 
it wasn't like a yes or a no. For some people, it's like, yeah, I have heard it, but I've got absolutely no idea. But what that did was when we did when we went through the course, was it enabled people to think, well, okay, now I'm moving along now. I can actually see that I didn't know this before. So I'm I'm wondering if that's kind of the pre-testing bit, but potentially a way in that isn't, oh, I can't do any of it. It's actually thinking, here's what I'm going to be using, which a bit like the advanced organizer bit, but this is what I definitely haven't heard before. This is what I definitely have. This is what I could explain informally, but it's a bit sketchy. And this is actually, I'm so confident I could stand at the front and explain this. I don't know whether that's potentially bridging something, some bits that people have been saying. Yeah, potentially. And that could be, it's kind of like a activating prior knowledge thing. And so they're going, you you bring, get them to bring these two concepts up. It's like, oh, I've heard of this one, but I haven't heard of this one, Mm -hmm. but we're covering them both today. Therefore, there must be some relationship between them. And so they're starting to connect that knowledge already in some sort of an mm-hmm. inchoate way. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 interesting. And that also might suggest why it might be trickier or less effective in maths. I don't know if that's empirically borne out yet. But because you, you imagine when you're doing a bunch of maths questions or tr- attempting them, the cognitive load's pretty high and si- starting to build a schema based upon seeing a set of maths questions, I think would be a lot harder than starting to build a schema based upon a series of history questions or economics questions, for example, just because it's often the domains are so, so so novel and unfamiliar to us. So that's kind of one idea there. And on, on the um, motivation front, I think that you can frame a pretest pretty effectively to students. Um, you know, this isn't going to count towards your mark. We actually haven't taught you this, so we don't expect you to know it. But maybe you've learned some of this stuff from TV shows or YouTube or something in the past. So we're just keen to get an idea of, of where you're at. I think the motivational benefit could come more by, I can't remember who it was, but someone talked about um, or alluded to the idea of like you doing this in a routine way and talking and really talking about, you know, what let's get you to reflect back what progress have you actually made in this unit and using that as like a springboard for saying, okay, well, look, you know, at the start, you didn't know anything. You know, we're starting year seven. You didn't know much. We've just taught you stuff. It seemed like a lot. You felt a bit overwhelmed, but actually you've learned a lot. Oh, I've learned a lot. Okay, let's do the next unit. Let's see how much you can learn over this next unit. So I think there could be a kind of a motivational benefit there. Um, and the fi- the final thing there, this is actually a, str- a strategy that's used. And Emma was talking about, you know, you don't you don't know anything. Okay, you've like the cold writing and the hot writing. Yeah, of course you don't know how to do it at the start. We taught you, and now you know. Unsurprising. This is actually a, a strategy in um coming back to self regulated learning training, um trying to get students to do things that they wouldn't have done. Otherwise, so for example, self-regulated retrieval practice is something that kids just often are pretty reticent to do because it takes more cognitive effort, right? And also it's a desirable difficulty, which by definition means that it's it's desirable because it has uh, learning uh, benefits, but it's difficult and it doesn't you don't have a sense of it working. So the question is, how can we actually convince students to do these things that are desirable difficulties and other, thi- other, other things like that? And this idea of a participatory demonstration is exactly what they do. So they get students to, um, they teach them two lists of words and they say, with this one list, we're going to get you to do this thing called retrieval practice. With this other list, we're going to let you restudy it as much as you want. And then we're going to do another test and get you to compare. And the students go, oh, 
actually with the retrieval, I remember more. That's weird. And you go, that's right. What you just did, it's called the retrieval effect. If you do it in class, you'll learn more. So there's kind of that, uh, it's actually brought out in the research that there is a motivational benefit for motivating the learning strategy as well, which I think is quite interesting. Love it, Ollie. Love it, Ollie. And final thing on this, just um, just you're inter- asking about the self-regulated learning bit, Ollie. I've just got a bit hot off the press. I've actually read it in a bit more depth here, which I should have done before. But here you go. You'll be loving this. Um, so the, the quiz the kids afterwards, and it says, on a follow-up questionnaire, students reported that they took the pretest seriously, but they were then much more aware when pre-tested topics were later discussed in lectures. So this is this, they were more attentive because they were aware of the gaps that had been identified. And then, this is for you all, furthermore, many students reported using the pretest to guide their own study behavior. So I guess is this is a bit of the kind of self-regulated bit there. There we go. Right. Okay. Mm. Two ideas to go. So it is Tom for the ultimate one, then to bring it home, it will be Anna. So, Tom, what is the final thing you've been thinking about? This could be a huge discussion on itself. Okay, here's, here's my feeling. That <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of, I want to talk about coaching, okay, and, and some of the stuff to do with instructional coaching, uh, which is hopefully it's okay. It's not a classroom thing. My hunch is this, that if you, t- if, if you focused all your training around coaching people in, multi- in twos or threes rather than on their own, everything is better <laughs> so this is my, my my feeling and because lots of reasons and i just think it's something which sometimes doesn't get enough focus and i don't know if it's been even studied specifically but it may have been in which case i'd love to read it so if i was let's say i'm looking at you on the screen and there's three of you if i just if i was going to be your coach i'd be thinking i've got to see each one of you observe you talk to you set up a relationship with you get a process going with you and it, I'm thinking of time I'm thinking of all the dialogues we could have and that might be great if I've got like time isn't a time isn't a pressure but also the I'm, I'm relying on those conversations being kind of successful and but I'd have no time with you in between typically but if, if I was to if I had a choice and well this is my suggestion that if I had a choice and I just had no time constraints I would say even if I have no time constraints, I'm going to coach you all three at the same time. And I'm going to meet you together, talk about uh, what we experience as common challenges. I'll observe you all, I'll drop in, and I could do like time efficient for me. I just drop in, I could see you all teach in half an hour. And then like 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, so I've got information. And we can have a really good discussion about common challenges, common issues, what we're all feeling, how what struggles we've got. There's solidarity, there's collective understanding and you could either agree a, a, a common thing to work on or different things to work on i can then say cool see you in a couple of weeks time whatever in between you'll carry on the conversation which gives you momentum collective support gives you ideas you can even co-observe if there's time and then when i when i come to meet you next time you've had way more conversation about the whole issue than if i'd only seen you on your own and then we can just keep that process going. And I just think that has so much more, it's more practical and more pragmatic, but it's also better, I think, because of the the nature of the collective support and the fact that teachers are experiencing very similar issues and you can share ideas about how to solve them. And sometimes the coach isn't necessarily the one who has all the ideas and you hear each other. 
if I just left you three on your own to say, go and do this, why do you need me? What can happen in a whole school is that some of the threes don't have enough of a drive. You know, there's not, they can be a bit like soft, a bit kind of limp. No, they don't really push each other. But I'm there to say, well, come on, what about this? And how about that? So I can help you push if you're not doing it yourselves. So that's my feeling. Well, my idea is that not only is coaching twos or threes more time efficient, it's more beneficial anyway. And it's probably the model that more schools should be trying to pursue rather than trying to put resource into one-to-one coaching, which is difficult to deliver. And what I would say, less effective. <laughs> I would love to know if that's been tested. But anyway, that's my idea. Wow, this is a good one, this. Right, we'll go to Emma first then because it'll all be kicking off when this comes to Ollie. So we'll start with Emma. Go for it. (laughs) Time is precious in schools. Time is finite. So anything that works in terms of efficiencies is thumbs up. Um, I like the kind of a maintaining the momentum idea. Lots of things tend to dissipate in schools because other competing priorities and things take over. Um, I like the fact that potentially there are more ideas in the room uh, than just the one from the coach and the, or ones from the coach and the coachee. Um, I was just mentally scrolling through the little tr- trios I might have put together in my last school as a head or trios I might have wanted to be part of or not wanted to be part of as, a, as, a, as that model. I think care would need to be taken with who was selected to be in the trios. Uh, or groups um, in terms of working relationships, but also kind of power dynamics, all of those sorts of things, which I know are meant to be kind of left at the door in a coaching situation, but a lot of the time are still in play. But on a positive note, I was just thinking there was one, there were years where I had uh, three or four ECTs, NQTs, you know, newly qualified teachers at the same time to mentor. And I very quickly realized it was much better to have them all together as a group than it was to um, try and do it all individually. So I very much recognise the benefits of that kind of group experience, not just for efficiencies of time, but actually because ideas bounce around the room, commonalities are drawn out, you're not saying the same same thing again and again. Um, and that kind of mutual support and uh, a kind of shared accountability for each other throughout the process. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I think I'm a fan, Tom. Thanks. Interesting. <laughs> Ollie. Cool, thanks. Um, I think a really interesting suggestion. I think it can work really well. This is kind of like what Emma was saying. If they are all on the same technique or the, the same step, um, and that's because some of the most crucial active ingredients in my mind of coaching are things like when the rubber really hits the road is after the coach has kind of described what the step is or maybe they've both referred to a, a, a external resource or something to skill up. And then you actually go, okay, what is this going to look like in your next lesson? And there's explicit planning that takes place and there's explicit rehearsal that takes place. And I think a lot of learning could happen if you are working with a, a group of newly graduated um, teachers and they're all working on the same thing. And, the, and one says, okay, this is how I'm going to apply it in my class. And the second one says, and then you might give some explicit feedback to that. And the other two are kind of listening and watching. And then the other two go on and plan. And then there's actually rehearsal and they all start to build it in and see each other give give feedback. I think that if they weren't all working on the same thing, um, that could create a challenge because then they, they wouldn't necessarily, well, they, they could kind of learn from the others as well. 
uh, but it wouldn't be as focused as I'd probably want it to be so they can really refine their understanding of that technique and really start to practice in a highly focused way to start to turn it into habit. Um, So I think it could work really well if you're working with early career teachers and you're kind of bringing them lockstep at least for a while um, on a developmental progression of improving teaching. Um, Or it could work well if you had some mechanism. And I actually have suggested this recently as a a built-in function for StepLab, an ability to identify people within your school who are working on the same step. Um, and you just get a ping. It's like you you decide on new step ping. Oh, Tom's also working on this step. You might want to catch up with him. And so that that breeds an opportunity to kind of just have like casual chat in the staff room or something. Oh, I heard you're working on this step. How's it been going for you? What have you been trying? Uh, and so on. A, a, a one challenge of such an approach, I think, is the kind of scheduling challenge, which is like, okay, now instead of just finding a time where the coach is free and the coach is free, I've got to find a time when the coach is free and all three people are free. Um, in which case, I think those times would often fall into kind of an after school time or when you'd usually be running your CPD and things like that. And from there, the question for me would be, okay, could we actually be doing this in a kind of peer coaching approach where uh, we're doing more of a whole school thing and we're all in the hall and maybe the head of coaching or the head of teaching and learning delivers a bit of PD about a particular strategy this week and then teachers can choose to work on that strategy or they can go on and work in pairs and there's this real visibility and accountability because you can see everyone's practicing at the same time that's building that kind of collective teacher efficacy and you've got a sense and then the, the coach can walk around and just pop into different pairs and give targeted support. So I'm wondering if this approach would deliver benefits over kind of a whole school coaching peer coaching approach that lots of schools use already um, or whether the you know the the two extremes maybe offer the most the most benefit the individual or the whole school approach it's interesting i'll do a very quick reflection then i'll hand back to tom just in case he's any um, follow-ups to anything the three of us have, have said there um the work I tend to do in schools, it, it, it kind of ties into this a little bit. So when I when I visit a school, let's say I'm doing five days of support over the course of a term or something like that. Day one is typically where I'll watch lessons in the morning and then we'll get the whole of the maths department together in the afternoon and we'll work on one thing and we'll all work on one thing together. So it may be use of mini whiteboards during the do now, or it may be using call and respond or t- turn and talk or whatever it is, but we'll all work on a specific thing. And that tends to work really well for that day one visit. But then when day two comes along or day three comes along, the individual coaching seems to be much more efficient because teachers have kind of gone off on their own paths a little bit. And we don't all have this kind of single focus that that we need to work on. So it makes much more sense for me to work individually with somebody who wants to further develop their questioning. But then I'm also going to work individually with someone who wants to work more on their whatever it is, cold call or or whatever it may be. So it feels to me that the group stuff, again, just just reiterating what, what, what Ali and Emma have said, that it feels to me that the kind of the group coaching works far better when you've got this kind of shared goal the shared step but then the individual stuff needs to come when the yeah kind of the people diverge a little bit but but tom any final reflections on on that yeah interesting because i and i think the logistics thing that ollie was talking about are are important and where, where schools i know do this already it's kind of like you know like a primary school where you know the two year six teachers are free because they're doing something else with a specialist teacher so they're free at the same time or there's a school structure where 
the coaching slot is defined and th- those teachers are all free because it's before or after school. So that's definitely the truth. But the main the main thing I, I think is this, is that it's about defining things as the step because I, w- I would say it works better when the goal is defined more as the problem rather than the step. So, and, and you get into more what I call the kind of tennis player analogy, which is more like, you're, it works with with you know experienced teachers where we're saying like how do I let, let's say one of the problems I was talking about earlier like say involving the kids from the back of the class that there's numerous ways in and we all we can discuss that challenge all the time so we've got like a range of techniques we're all using like our forehand backhand and our volley like in tennis but what we're discussing is the best time to use them or the best sequence of using them and so we can share at that more sophisticated level of like combinations of techniques rather than zoomed in on a step and, and the decision making that you're, you're discussing in the coaching is a bit more zoomed out and therefore we, the common problem is always the same it's like we all have this problem and that's the commonality that one teacher might be saying well for me with those guys what I need to do is this and another teacher might be saying yeah well in my class I don't have so many of them but I've got some of these and and they're kind of sharing slightly different perspectives so you're sort of like having three parallel coaching things with three people, say, rather than it having to be totally exactly the same. So and and there's a kind of richer sort of discussion. They're like, I'm not just doing my thing. I can hearing what you're saying about your issue. I've got mine. Yeah. So I, I just, that's that's my feeling that I I think I've seen too many schools worry too much about getting the the mechanism going for it to be one to one when actually they don't have enough quite enough people doing it well. Obviously, Step Lab is a great training tool for getting people to do it well. I'm a huge fan of it, but I feel like even with Step Lab, I, and I've discussed this with the, with the guys, you know, about and some schools I know use it that way. They they sit there and they they do they log two people steps in the same discussion rather than one. So it's, anyway, all these things are up for discussion. I, I, I suppose the final thing to say is I'm I'm really sort of against any purism on this. I just think. There's a, there's a really broad church on it and it's kind of important to flex it and test it and that that was my current thought love it great stuff tom right emma bring us home what have you got for your final uh, final thing for us today i swear this is not a setup <laughs> so i did not know what we were going to be talking about i wanted to talk about manipulatives and i wanted to talk about um how manipulatives are used in key stage two which kind of links to things everybody's been saying and i was just laughing because i was just i pulled up a list for myself on my other screen to have a look at and i was thinking we've already talked about that one but i'm really interested in um how manipulatives can be used much more effectively uh within maths and the fact that there's still this conflation with the fact that um the older you get the less you need them Um, And actually, the power of manipulatives is so great that I really kind of like to smash that misconception that, you know, as soon as you move into key stage two, so you move to the juniors, you don't need them anymore. When actually, you are still so early on in your understanding of the number system and how it works, that actually every time you encounter a new part of the number system, you need that making, you know, need that writ large in front of you. But all of the other benefits of, of the use of manipulatives, like the increase in um, 
gesture, the fact that you can use it for conceptual prototyping so you can kind of unpick what children's early misconceptions are because they're literally there. I think that's a hugely underutilised aspect with slightly older children. And the example that I always give whenever I talk about this was the, the year three class that I went into so the children were seven and eight and they were doing fractions of a quantity. And I, there was a, a group of children who notionally apparently had got it and were working on some really hard you know, finding fractions of a quantity, whilst the rest of the class were using cubes to derive fractions of quantity. And I went over to this group that were meant to really know it. And I said, what's three quarters of 12? They told me what three quarters of 12 was. And I gave them 12 cubes and went, show me how to find three quarters of 12. Absolutely no idea. Absolutely none. Because they hadn't actually understood how you find a fraction of a quantity. They just remembered a little kind of um, yeah. a trick to doing it. And so it's, I'm absolutely a complete devotee of the manipulatives for understanding, especially early on in mathematical thinking, because you can see what children are thinking and you can ask them to show you what they're thinking. And if, if learning is invisible, if understanding is invisible, this is the way to make misconceptions visible by actually putting them on the table and going you show me what you are thinking not you write down the answer on this piece of paper but you show me what you're seeing when you're actually thinking about this and I think it's just such a missed trick that they seem to be you know that we wave a, a fond farewell to the unifix cubes as we move from key stage one to key stage two um, or we've got stuff gathering dust and we have this kind of 2d curriculum on the board rather than the 3D curriculum where children gesture at it, where they do this conceptual prototyping, where they interact with it and when they make their thinking visible. I just think it's a massively missed trick, Craig and Ollie. I, Tom, I, that's what I've been thinking about. <laughs> Love it, Emma. Tom, what do you make of that? I totally agree. I mean, and I, it's, it's a story I tell in my training like all the time. I just it's, it stuck with me so firmly. It's, it's, I think I put in a book about five years ago, a student I met in Oldham College retaking his math GCSE age 16, asked him to add a, a quarter plus a third or something. And he was like, he'd written two sevenths. And, and I asked him, I told him it was wrong. And I said, well, I, I can tell you that's wrong straight away. But and how do I know that? And Because I'm thinking, how big is two sevenths? It can't be the right answer. And I, and I said, so how do you, how big do you think it is? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, how big's two sevenths? And he went, well, that even didn't mean anything to him. <laughs> like he just saw the numbers on the page and two over a seven did not have a physical spatial meaning to him in any sense. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we have no connection between the symbolic version of this and the numbers and actual fractionless and parts and holes and all that. So it's like, wow. So here's, Here's someone who's been through our education system for 10 years and has never learned that. And I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, get your, get your number lines. I mean, he, his, his number sense was terrible. You know, he, he, he could do 25% because that made sense for him, but he couldn't do a quarter. It's, it's, it's so weird, you know, and he, all of these things were, you couldn't tell the difference between a half and 0 0.2 and everything was just a jumble. And it's, it's exactly that his spatial sense of numbers and what they mean was just non-existent. And so manipulatives are clearly massively part of that. And I think if people need them, they need them. And that that, that could continue all the way through school until... But I've even seen A-level teachers making a really good job of making something feel sort of concrete. You know, how 
what's what's happening here? Can you see what's happening to these numbers and why that's behaving in that way? It's sort of it's not just this abstract soup of symbols. It's got meaning. And numbers have the meaning of number generally beyond manipulatives, I think, is a wider thing about about schema building, even like the size of numbers, you know, how big 722 is compared with 200. It's like that sense of space between them and how big the gap is. And a lot, a lot of that building number sense, I just think it's so important and, and, and interesting. It's one of my favorite things to think about with maths it's, is, is that. It's, um, it. it's such a. It's one that needs such careful thought, though, as well, because I've seen it done so badly where, you know, somebody's teaching me kites on Monday, Teddy's on Tuesday, grapes on Thursday. And I'm just thinking, how are the children meant to make any connection between this? So there's manipulatives and there's well-chosen manipulatives that are designed specifically to help children make connections across maths as well. So it's picking those pieces of equipment that become familiar with them. They begin to see those connections between the different parts of the number system because you're using the same piece of equipment to teach different things. Um, And also then that kind of familiarity with it kind of reduces the overall cognitive load of what you're teaching because they're not having to work out how to get to grips with the equipment. So they've actually freed up more space to actually think about mathematics because they're familiar with the equipment. So I think that, yes, manipulatives, but they have to be a very small bank of transferable manipulatives that are transferable across multiple different aspects of mathematics that children become really familiar with and that they become the pictures that the children actually see when they're beginning to formulate their own own understanding about the number system so that you haven't got well is it kites is it giraffes is it pairs of shoes you've got that really clear picture of it so I think manipulatives and manipulatives can't really say it that (laughs) done really well um is my well it has been my area of focus for about 20 years now but it's kind of rearing its head again at the minute ollie what do you what do you make of it yeah three quick things and thanks for bringing this one up emma because i think it is really important um the first is and this two two of these are going to reflect my my kind of montessori rant from earlier teachers really need to be taught how to use these right because there is an easy mistake to make which is to think that i've got the manipulatives here to teach this concept therefore i have the lesson ready to go but the manipulative is not the lesson actually it's just part of the lesson and it's an assistance for the teacher to communicate a concept and it's also tricky, like as a teacher, if you just look at a manipulative and you're like, oh, this can be used to teach X, Y, Z, you don't immediately know how it can be used, right? You need to literally be taught in some sort of structured way. So that's a big part of the challenge of manipulatives, I think. Um, but it's also, you know, part of the power because it does provide a resource for us to kind of gather around and say, all right, this is a an artifact we can use in our teaching. What's the best and wisest way to use that? The second thing is, I think part of the power of these is, um, you, you mentioned there, Emma, you know, you'd be able to say, oh, show me what three quarters looks like or whatever it might be. But uh, an additional power of manipulatives is also helping students to see for themselves when something's right and when something isn't. It's very ro- easy to just write something on the page, just some random numbers, two plus two equals 10. I can write that easily, but I can't get two blocks and another two blocks and then say count to 10 unless I've got something, you know, I'm really struggling with my one-to-one correspondence or something like that, right? So there's that self-correcting. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that self-correcting power of them as well, which is uh, really, really, really strong. Um, and the final thing I think I wanted to add here was that, 
just because you're using manipulatives, this is a misconception some people have, I think, it doesn't mean that students have to discover the principle, yeah. right? They don't have to actually discover the principle through using the manipulatives. You can actually explicitly teach the principle using the manipulative as an aid and then say, okay, based upon that, now you show me how to make one quarter. Now you show me how to make uh, two quarters mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. The practice comes with the manipulatives, not necessarily the discovery. So yeah, quick three three quick things there. Teachers need to be taught. The manipulative isn't the lesson. Yeah. There's a lot of power in the self-correcting there as well. And it doesn't mean they need to discover the principle. Love I think it. it was, I think it, oh, is, sorry, is, is it Ball that says, is it, is it, I might be misquoting this terribly. I don't know if it's Ball that said it about just because you use a manipulative, the learning doesn't travel up the fingers and through the arm. <laughs> into the okay. I love that. That's a good one. That is good. That, um, just a few reflections for, for me on this, if, if that's okay, Emma, and then I'll, um, I'll, I'll hand back to you mm -hmm. just in case there's anything final you want to add. And sorry, I've cut Tom off there as well, so I'll, I'll hand to Tom as well. So I think my lack of use of manipulatives is, is about, again, number 43 of my kind of biggest failings as, as a maths teacher. Um, I think there are a few reasons for it. Um, one, Ollie's already alluded to, um, I was never trained in using manipulatives. Um, I don't remember that even really being a thing or again uh, from from my kind of limited experience so that, that that was kind of problem number one um there's always a logistical issue i, I encounter this going back to mini whiteboards it, the you know, one of the main reasons not to use a mini whiteboard is because you've got three pieces of equipment, the board, the pen, and the rubber. And if behavior's an issue and time's an issue, it's it's a barrier. Well, let's take manipulatives, right? If you've got the cubes out, there's hundreds of these flipping things knocking around and so on. So there's always a logistical barrier. And my thing with whiteboards is, and I'll tie this into manipulatives, the mistake I've made in kind of training and giving CPD is I start with, okay, let's try and reduce the barrier first. But if people don't see the need to use them, there'll always be a reason not to. So if you if you just think of the hassle of whiteboards, well, I'm not going to use them. But if instead we forget the hassle, let's let's try and show teachers the power of using them. Right now we can actually, this barrier is, you know, we can we can get over this barrier. I think it's the same with manipulatives for me. I always saw the barrier and I never saw the need for using them. So I, I just didn't bother. So it was a logistical issue. Um, I think... Reason number three was I never used them myself as a as a learner. So I after the while, so I thought, well, nobody else needs them. I was okay at math, so you know, well, why does anybody else need to use them? But my biggest number one reason for not using them, and Emma, you've hit the nail on the head with this, is I always saw them as the starting point that I wanted to move away from as quick as possible because they were for the weaker students. They were, you know, for the kids who couldn't do the calculations on paper, they couldn't do the algorithms and so on. But it's only when you think about it, and I think your example of the fractions is a brilliant one, that it's so much harder. It shows such a greater depth of understanding if you can demonstrate it versus physically versus just carry out, you know, some abstract algorithm on, on a bit of paper. So yeah, I'm team manipulative these days. Now, the biggest irony of all this, by the way, is I was I was saying for years on my podcast how I don't use manipulatives at all. Then I was at the Maths Association conference and I won the quiz and our prize was a, a class set of manipulatives, which again, I've still got in my, in my bookcase behind me, actually, which I don't think I've ever used. So yeah, this is, I'm a massive hypocrite with this kind of thing. So yeah, hand it over to you. There we go. <laughs> I like it, Tom. Did you have anything to add before I, I rudely cut you off? No, I just, it's just there's the, a family folklore story about my brother when he was at school, uh, early early days of school, and he came home saying they're doing some adding, and we they used dice to add numbers, and uh, my mom said, 
Well, like one, he said, well, if it was a three and a four, that was seven. And if it was a two and a, a, a five, that was seven. And so my mom said, what if it was a four and a five? And he said, oh, no, we don't do nines. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> Just to show, like, it was, he was way beyond what it was delivering for him. But that that is the risk, isn't it? Like, you, you have to... In, the limitation has to sort of match the level of, of cognitive thinking, but it can, of course. But you know that was anyway. We always laugh about that story. Love it. Don't, Love we it. Don't, we don't. We don't do nines. Is a sort of phrase in our family. Like we all know that joke. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Well, this brings us to the end of the the, the main podcast. Um, we're going to hang around for a few minutes and record something exclusive for Ollie's patrons. But I wanted to just give an opportunity first to thank Emma and Tom for joining us on this kind of experimental show. But also, as we always do, give give uh, give our guests a chance to plug anything. So, um, Emma, I'll go to you first. Tell us a bit about the podcast, and obviously, you've you, you've got a book out. I know that as well. So, tell us a bit. Tell us a bit about this. Just thinking my book's in the other room. <laughs> Didn't really want it. I was going to wave it. Uh, well, it says about the podcast, our podcast. Um, yeah. But Tom and I, Mind the Gap for John Katz. We have interviewed the great, the good, the wise, the wonderful for, um, I think we've had 56 different guests on or something like that now, Tom. No, no some- Ollie Lovell, I notice. He's not quite made the cut yet, right? <laughs> He has been asked. Maybe after Oh, he's too big for it. Yeah, that's no surprise. No surprise there. Yeah. Um, we've uh, interviewed all sorts of people. We've got some great guests coming up. Um, we've had some recent ones with just me and Tom talking about the issues of the day, which are coming out soon. But you can find us on YouTube and on Spotify. So that's great. You. And your book, Emma? Oh, yeah. Don't ask me to say it because um, Bradley Bush of Inner Drive told me the other day that I pronounced it incorrectly. He said, you've written a book, you can't say the title. <laughs> I thought it was pronounced initium. Apparently not. Apparently, if you're a classic Latin scholar, there should be no shit in the middle. So it should be initium. There you go. Initium. Love it. And Tom, any, anything to plug from you? Um, well, I'm not really, not anything particularly new except for the fact that um, I'm going to I'm going to uh, a, a trail which is that currently Oliver my my partner in crime Oliver Caviglio and I are working on we're about three quarters of the way through learning walkthroughs it's written for students it's like it's like a uh, it's like walkthroughs but all explaining learning and school and study to kids um using the walkthroughs style and that's been great so we're we're we're, we're writing that at the moment and uh, that'll come out next spring I think Wow. World exclusive there, Tom. I like that. And yeah. and Ollie, I noticed you haven't mentioned Dan Willingham yet this podcast, so I'll just give you an opportunity to do that if you want to before we sign off. <laughs> oh, I don't know how to work that in. Uh, here we go. No, uh, yeah, if, if people are looking for some 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 more uh, things to explore, I do have my weekly email that comes out. The, the last three, we've looked at the crucial role of credible experts. We've looked at a bit of coaching content around only use the phrase "I wonder" if you actually wonder, and we've done some uh, some knowledge based stuff like the, the third third most recent blog there was how knowledge is structured for experts, looking at the idea of if then statements. So if people are keen on that, um, ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe uh, for some goodness every Friday. Love it, fantastic. Well, as always, thank you very much for tuning in and listening, and we'll see you very soon. Bye for now.